0: My name is Cindy Burnett, and I am the host of the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. Each episode, I interview authors about their latest works. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page, and on Twitter at burn555555. Today, I am interviewing Kathleen West about her second novel, Are We There Yet? Kathleen is the author of Minor Dramas and Other Catastrophes, which was a best books pick by Real Simple, Newsweek, People Magazine, Entertainment Weekly, and the New York Post. A teacher for 20 years before she published her first novel, Kathleen is particularly interested in the topics of motherhood, ambition, competitive parenting, and the elusiveness of work-life balance. She is a lifelong Minnesotan and lives in Minneapolis with her family. Kathleen and Simone St. James were the last authors that my literary salon hosted before the pandemic changed our world. While it is a bit mind-boggling that we are still dealing with this pandemic an entire year later, I am thrilled that she joined me to discuss her latest and quite fabulous book. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome, Kathleen. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Cindy? I'm doing well too, and I'm so excited to talk with you. You know, I always look back on you and Simone and think that was our last event before we went into this quarantine that has lasted way longer than I ever dreamt. So I can't believe we're now to your next book and we're still in the midst of all of this.
1: I know. Actually, my phone just brought up a picture from that event the other day as a memory, and it is such a happy memory. I'm in the picture, I'm sitting next to Simone, and you're asking us questions. And I haven't worn that outfit or really any other outfit in the year <laughs> since, since that time. So it was a happy memory. And I too can't believe we're still here.
0: It kind of took me back to that time when I was getting ready for this because I was thinking, you know, we had no clue what was coming and we had such a great time, but it is what it is and we will get through it.
1: It's true. And I feel like we are, I mean, I want to knock on wood here, but I feel like we are on the back end, at least a little bit with the vaccine rolling out and the number of people who have either been vaccinated or infected going up. And also time doesn't mean the same things anymore. So I'm thinking like, oh, in six months, things will be okay. Whereas it used to be like a six day delay was really crippling. Now it just feels like time means something different.
0: That's a good point. And I also feel like it's really slowed things down. And part of that has been wonderful. Like it's just nice not to be at this frenetic pace all of the time.
1: Yeah, I agree with you there. I think I've spent a little bit too much time with my teenagers, meaning like I've enjoyed the time with them. But I just have the feeling that that having dinner with me every night and watching TV with me every night is not what they
0: are supposed to be doing.
1: (laughs) So I'm looking forward for their sake to kind of a return to normalcy.
0: I agree completely, and that was actually one of the things I wanted to talk with you about today. Your new book, Are We There Yet?, deals so much with teenagers today and and how much pressure and just everything they have to deal with, and then on top of it, to throw in the pandemic, there's just a lot for them, but we can talk about that in a minute. Let's first just start out by talking about your book. Why don't you tell me a little bit about Are We There Yet?
1: Okay. My book is about Alice Sullivan, who is an architect and interior designer who feels like she's kind of hitting a stride in her life. She's out of the diaper phase with her kids. Her youngest daughter is in second grade. She's able to focus on her work in a way that she hasn't since her children have been born. And then one day she goes to her school conferences and discovers that her second grader is eight levels behind in reading. She's shocked by that. And at the same time, she gets a call from the junior high where her son Teddy is in seventh grade and he's done something pretty terrible at school in the bullying realm. And so, this event, both events actually kind of change her standing, her social standing. In her community among her friends. And the book really deals with how her reputation depends on her children's actions. And at the same time, her mom has a family secret that she unloads. And so there's kind of an intergenerational conflict going on as well.
0: I felt like poor Alice was getting hit from all sides.
1: Yes, I agree. And my, my husband read an early version of it. And he's like, gosh, I just feel so bad for her. You know, why does she everything have to keep happening? And I'm like, well, Dan, how many books have you read where the character that you like and care about just has a normal day or week or month <laughs> in their life? Everything does really kind of hit her for a big identity crisis in this book.
0: Well, I also think that people like you and I who have children in middle school and high school and are dealing with some of these issues are also dealing with issues on the other side, parent issues. And so there is a lot going on. So I really could relate a lot to Alice. I mean, not the particular things that she was dealing with, but the fact that you're sometimes dealing with things from both generations.
1: Yeah, I think that's really true. And her mom is at a at a tipping point in her own life, kind of nearing retirement and still actively involved as a parent in her adult daughter's life. So trying to balance what she's going through, too, you know, having been such an involved parent and now facing this new retirement era and wanting to address her own concerns and her own interests at the same time. So it's a, it's a couple of people at tipping points in their lives.
0: Most definitely. Well, how did you come up with the subject matter for this one?
1: So I was adopted at birth. And when I was in my teen years, I met my birth father and birth mother. There is an adoption angle in this story. So I started out to write an adoption book. And then the story really morphed into Alice's story of parenthood. So the adoption angle kind of took a secondary position to the other story. But that's kind of where it started for me. And then as I was writing that piece of the story, I started to think a lot about how as a parent myself and as all the parents that I've worked with in my years as a teacher, the idea that we really take on our children's identities in a lot of ways. So meaning if something good happens to my kids or they have a big accomplishment, the tendency is to take credit for that. And then on the flip side, if they make a big mistake, are we required to take the blame as well? So I started thinking about that idea too. And that really shaped a lot of Alice's experience.
0: And there's a flip side to that too, not only whether we personally take the glory or take the blame, but whether other people view us based on either the glory or the blame that our children are receiving.
1: Yeah, I've seen that so much. And, you know, even being in parent-teacher conferences with families, I feel like oftentimes the parents look at me like I'm giving them an assessment of their own performance rather than talking about the child's experience in the classroom or achievement in the classroom. And I think that that can be, you know, you get the side eye, if your kid is the one who's misbehaving that year, other parents in the community kind of know that or hear about that. And it it maybe impacts their relationships with you. In fact, like yesterday, I was with my younger son plays hockey, I was at a hockey game. And one of the moms was disappointed by her kids behavior on the ice. And frankly, I hadn't even noticed it. But she was in tears. And she was just like, I just feel like he's not a nice person, you know, like this is who he is. And I'm like, well, first of all, I don't I didn't even notice what you're talking about. So we're so sensitive, whereas other people aren't paying close attention. But also I tried to reassure her by saying like, we don't judge 13 year olds forever based on this moment in time. So like 13 year olds are supposed to behave in all kinds of different and sometimes disturbing ways. And that doesn't mean anything for their future
0: that's completely true because they just don't have that impulse control yet but I just thought your story was so interesting because it's what happens in real life like sort of one little thing happens that maybe was pretty innocent but maybe didn't go as innocently as it had been intended and then it just sort of domino you know there's is domino effect from there and by the time you're done all hell is broken loose
1: <laughs> yeah I think that middle school that's kind of middle school in a nutshell you know um, there's a thing that happens and then there, there's the thing that people say they saw and and those perceptions are all different of the actual event. And then it's how kids describe it to their parents and how parents describe it to each other. And all of a sudden, like the truth or the motivation behind the original incident is completely morphed and different.
0: Well, and everyone tends to think that their child or most people tend to think that their child isn't going to be the responsible one. And just like in your story, what I think happens in real life most of the time is that there's not one person that is completely responsible. Maybe one person started it, whether intentional or not intentional, but as it goes down the road. There are many people participating.
1: Yeah. And what I always tell parents um, have, you know, I've been a teacher for a long time. And I always tell parents, like when your kids tell you about something that happened at school, you have to realize that they're telling you their emotional truth about what happened. And that's going to be some version, of the actual event. <laughs> you know, it's not that you can't believe them or they're lying to you. But the importance of that event in their own psyches is going to take precedence in their description of the event. And so to kind of understand that you're, listening to your kids or taking their accounts with a grain of salt or just an openness to other perspectives.
0: I actually thought that was one of the harder things to learn as a parent was whatever it was, not even in a situation this grave, but whatever the situation was, to realize I had to listen to what they were telling me. And then I had to kind of investigate a little more to figure out exactly what had happened, because I do think that's human nature generally. But adults are at least a little better able to process it and relay it. And so there'd be times when one of them would tell me something and I would think, Oh my gosh. And then, of course, it was nothing quite that bad. It was how they had perceived it or how the rumor mill was working or, you know, whatever it was. And that you really had to take a deep breath and try to get to the bottom of it before any kind of reaction occurred.
1: Yes. And I think that. System or or that process by which adults investigate has had to compress because like now we have kids texting from the classroom you know like they get a test back or something and they're texting immediately to their parents like my teacher did x y z and so there's no time for them to even process the accuracy of what's happened before the parent is already intervening and everything's just gotten so much faster with technology social media constant communication and so it's even harder I think for parents to take the time. They need to figure out what actually happened and what they actually want to do about it.
0: And the flip side of that, too, is that things can go so much more awry because of social media versus had it just been, you know, like when we were growing up and there was just the phone line that the one phone line in a house, things just didn't travel as fast as they travel now.
1: Yeah. And also kids like immediate thoughts and reactions didn't travel either. There was no expectation that you would tell someone how you were feeling about every little thing that came down the pike. But now that's kind of how our society is working. You know, you you think of how to convey your thoughts or feelings in a clever Instagram post or tweet, or if you're younger, in your Snapchat or whatever is new, and I don't even know about yet, like TikTok, etc. And it's kind of just the way things go that we we communicate more and package our reactions into things for consumption more. In, in my book, one of the characters makes a big mistake in terms of taking an ill-advised photo, and I'm sure a lot of listeners will share that fear that their kids would do that or receive such a a photo via Snapchat. But she does it in part because her mom turns off her phone apps at 9pm. Like she knows her phone is going to go dead at nine. And she has the thought like, I should think more about this before I take this picture. But it's like 857. And she doesn't have time. So I kind of liked that irony in that moment about how The system that's designed by her mom to keep her safe actually kind of causes her to take the impulsive action. So there's so many things to balance as a parent in this technological age. And it's really hard to figure out like where you should land between control and permissiveness. You know, like how much should the kids decide and, you know, how much should you argue?
0: It's really hard to decide exactly where to come down on that. We have not caught up to the technology because it moves so fast.
1: Absolutely, we have not. And and for every time that we think we have, the kids have already determined to work around. And so I think the most important thing, not that anyone's asking me for parenting advice, but I think the most important thing is to really keep an open line of communication with your kids about the types of communications that they may receive and the types of reactions that they may have and the short and long-term consequences of different types 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 of interactions online, because I don't think it's reasonable to expect that we can prevent all mistakes at this point. So the more important thing is to be open to hearing about those mistakes and helping your kids figure out how to make them right.
0: I think that's exactly right. And that's what I try to do regularly with my children, not just one time, but regularly say, okay, don't forget, if you send something in a text, it's there, you can't change it. So think before you send and same with the photos to regularly have conversations about those things so that it's. Hopefully, somewhat in the forefront of their minds.
1: Yeah, exactly. I just think, like, the more you can talk to them, the better. It is because none of us have the power to go back and change the ubiquity. Is that a word? Ubiquity of iPhones and iPads and just constant communication. It just is the reality of being a teen right now. And I try to address this in my book too, but I've talked to a lot of parents who don't quite realize that if you try to be the one parent who doesn't allow the phone, for instance, that you really hamper your kids in terms of their social interactions. Like if everyone at school is planning their social engagements via text messages. And your kid doesn't have a phone, and then kids have to text a parent to to ask them to go someplace they're not going to. So you do isolate your kid if you make the decision to not have them connected, and that's a tough one too. Like I, I understand parents who who decide you know to delay the phone until like eighth grade, ninth grade, but then you have a few lonely years where it's going to be hard for them to connect.
0: I was glad that you included that because I think that's exactly right. The other thing I thought was interesting was that the stricter the regulations are on the phone, I think the more likely they're going to figure out workarounds. Instead of worrying so much about shutting everything down or monitoring every little thing, teach them how to navigate it as best you can and have that kind of constant open communication.
1: I agree. And I just it really doesn't sit well with me, the types of monitoring software where parents can see every keystroke. I mentioned these in the book or read every text message. That it sort of feels like, you know, reading your child's diary. And I understand that in some cases, parents decide to do that. But I don't know, it just it's not something that I want to do at this point. So I'd much rather try to maintain a really open line of communication, like I was saying before, than do what I kind of perceive as spying.
0: I agree. And you know, I think it's a hard thing when you start with your first kid, and you're trying to work through all of that. But somebody said something to me once that eventually kind of helped me Put it in the right perspective is like when we were growing up, we would go sit in the closet and you talk on the phone for an hour and that the equivalent of my mom picking up the other phone and listening to our entire conversation is the same thing as monitoring texts. That's the way they communicate today. And I would have been horrified if my mom sat through all of my phone calls. And so I think in that perspective helps me think about it to update me to the current times.
1: That's a great analogy. I'm going to steal that one and use that one in the future. I will say the one, the one way, uh, I have a couple of parenting mentors that have older kids than I do. Like, you know, a few years ahead, like you said, your oldest is 19. I've got a couple who either have adult children or just a few years older that I really trust their advice. And one of my friends was really against the idea of using one of those apps, like find my iPhone app where you can see where your kid is. And I have done that. Like I use the app that I can see where he is, but I justify this in saying that he, then he doesn't have to call me to check in for sure. He could get around that app if he wanted to like turn it off, et cetera, but then he doesn't have to call, you know, like I just can see, Oh, he's at He's at this place or at so-and-so's house and and he'll be home by curfew. So I don't know, but that's just an example about how we all have to make all of these decisions all the time about what our level of comfort is as parents of teens. And I think that that's kind of what this book is about, like figuring out where your line is and what the consequences are for being there, you know, like for deciding not to monitor certain things and deciding to monitor others. And that's what the parents in this book explore, you know, the pros and cons. Well, how did you come up with the title for it? Gosh, you know, I am terrible at titles in general. Usually all of my titles are the ones that are axed immediately by my publishing team. They're much smarter about this than I am. But I think I am actually the person who thought of Are We There Yet? The working title for the book was Wall-to-Wall Chaos, because I mentioned Alice is an interior designer. So like wall-to-wall carpeting, I thought wall-to-wall chaos sounded okay. But then my editor had the idea of making the book title kind of a childhood game. And I thought that was a a good idea. And we had some ideas based on that, like red light, green light. But then we thought that red light, green light had a little bit of a me too connotation that we didn't want. And I think I did write then as a choice, Are We There Yet? And I ended up really liking Are We There Yet? Because the book is really about being unfinished as a person. So not only is it the question that you hear from the backseat as you're driving someplace with your children, but also thinking about like, have I arrived or am I finished developing as a human being? And everyone in this book, not the grandmother, not the mom, not the kids, no one is finished developing as a human being.
0: So I liked how it worked thematically as well. I like that too. Yes, none of them are there yet. <laughs> and yeah. nor are we, right? I mean, we're all always working on trying to you know, better ourselves, become comfortable with things, all of that. But I just loved it. I felt like it was a great fit. And then the cover, the cover is stunning. And I know you have given credit to the people who designed it in the back of your book. You've posted a little bit about it, but it's just fantastic.
1: Oh, thank you. Yes, they are so good. It's Emily Osborne and Anthony Romano at, at Berkeley, my publisher in the art department. And I felt like it just it captured it, you know, one of the kids play soccer. And so um, there they are in the soccer field with the keys in the grass. And I was just like, yes, this is it. You know, like the number one, mom. it says number one mom on the soccer ball. And then there's like a little house keychain, And the whole thing just felt very appropriate to me and appropriate to the life stage that I was trying to convey to.
0: Well, I love it. And I think it's going to grab people's attention as soon as they see it.
1: I hope so. Let's sell a lot of copies. Yes, exactly.
0: Well, I'm going to help with that because I loved it. So I'm going to be recommending it to everybody.
1: That really means a lot.
0: Well, I read it in less than twenty-four hours. I picked it up, and then I was like, "Oh, I have to know!" And I have to tell you, at times, I was cringing because I'm like, "Oh, you've seen similar things unfold," or you're thinking, "This would be awful if it was my child." I mean, that's what made it so good because I think it's very relevant.
1: Yeah, I've heard that. You know, it's starting starting to get reviews on Instagram and other places, and it's so gratifying. Your compliment about reading it in one day is one of my favorite compliments. That it's just you know, propulsive as a plot. People want to keep finding out what's happening. And I have seen some reviews from Instagrammers who have younger children. And they're like, it's so hard to read about these teenage experiences. It's so uncomfortable to hear how the teens feel about their parents sometimes. And I totally get that. (laughs) Um, I think those relationships are really complex. But I try to also just make it really real. So I hope that people feel that way when they read it.
0: Well, and I would wonder if sometimes parents of young children would find some of it unbelievable because they're just not there yet.
1: Yes, that's probably right. And I think that's how parenting works. Like you can't, you're not really ready to think about the next stage because each stage is so, you know, just sucks you in so completely. Parenting is is a really tough and constant job at every stage. But I hope that readers will appreciate the teen years. And these teen characters, like they do make some really big mistakes, but they're also really lovable people, I think. And I think that's an important stance to take when you're raising teens. Like every kid is going to make mistakes, hopefully not the mistakes that the kids make in this book, but they are all going to make mistakes and say mean things and hurt people's feelings. And at the same time, they are adorable and keep their stuffed animals from their childhood. And and you hope that they're just going to grow up into an okay adult, (laughs) you know, some Yeah.
0: You just have to remind yourself, they are not their actions. That one little action is not representative of the whole child.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the big takeaways from my teaching career, and I, I continue to teach off and on, I'm no longer a full time teacher, but I did teach this fall, and I will teach again. And, and that's one of the joys of being a teacher is knowing someone at a moment in time and having a, a really clear knowledge that when you teach a kid, or when I teach a kid for a year or for six months, like I'm knowing them at one tiny moment in their lives and and their identity as adults is going to be different than their identities as a third grader or a sixth Grader or 12th grader, and there's something really great about that. I like
0: that. I'd never really thought about it from that perspective.
1: Yeah, it's there's so many privileges that come along with teaching. One of them is knowing families. So like seeing families and watching how they deal with their children's mistakes is a, a really big responsibility and privilege. And just kind of walking with parents through those tough moments. Oftentimes, teachers are the only other people that know the details about kids mistakes. And then what happens over the years is that you see that these kids who are making these mistakes, you know, sending their inappropriate photos or being really mean to someone, then you also see them at their soccer game. and, and hugging their grandma and scoring a goal. And there's just so many aspects that make a person. And part of being a kid is experimenting with all kinds of identities, including, you know, your worst instincts. And so being there as an adult who understands that those things are temporary is really important to me.
0: I think that's exactly right. Well, are you working on anything at the present that you would like to share with me?
1: Yes. I remember talking to you about Are We There Yet a year ago. I can't believe that. (laughs) Um, I am working on a new book. Uh, We don't have a title for it yet. I'm sure my titles will not be the ones. My working title was Overtime, and that's already totally axed. So it'll be something else. But it is about a woman who was an elite hockey player in high school in Minnesota. Hockey's I'm from Minnesota, hockey's a huge here. And she was in the first wave of women hockey players and was one of the last people cut for the O2 Olympic team in hockey. And after that failure of hers, her life kind of falls apart. And then you discover that she has had an affair with an assistant coach, which she thought would influence her likelihood of getting on the team. And she never told her husband about that. And now she is back in Minnesota after nine years away, and her youngest is getting into hockey. So rejoining that world and kind of facing all
0: the secrets from her past. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Will it be coming out next year?
1: I think so. I don't have a pub date yet, but it's due to my editor on March 15th, just a day before um, Are We There Yet comes out. And I'm assuming it will come out sometime in spring 2022 or summer 2022 or fall 2022, somewhere in there it will be out.
0: It's always fascinating to me the way those deadlines work because you're thinking, okay, I want to focus on Are We There Yet and the fact that it's coming out. And I'm also having to then turn in my next one.
1: It is. I mean, I just, I never really thought about the mechanics of that. And it's funny because, like, For me, no matter how much time I have or or anything, it's always down to the final wire. Like there's something about that last second pressure that helps me (laughs) get it done. Yeah. So I'm in a really big push right now to finish up this most recent draft. And then I'm sure when my editor reads it, she'll have some brilliant ideas and we'll do a pretty significant revision. But yeah, right now my, my energy is definitely divided between getting Are We There Yet out and finding readers for it and then also just finishing what used to be overtime.
0: Right. And it's got to be a little bit hard to kind of split attention between the two.
1: Yes. And my attention span has really suffered in the pandemic. I I think this is common. I've read about it in articles and from other people, but it's hard for me to really focus in on, on something for a long period of time. So I don't know. Challenges abound.
0: Well, on that note, have you read anything recently that you really liked?
1: Yes, I have read so many things I really liked. And in November, I was just finishing up. I taught full-time this fall. As I mentioned, I was doing a maternity leave fill in a third grade classroom. So my reading was really slow in the early fall. And then around Thanksgiving, I decided to get out of my slump. I would read nothing but thrillers and mysteries. That's a genre that I really love. And I have read so many good things. And then it kind of jump-started my reading. So the thriller that got me, or mystery, her first book, is a Locked Room Style Mystery by Tessa Wiegert. It's called Death in the Family, and it's part of a series. That's the first in the series. And as soon as I finished it, I read the second one, The Dead Season, and it's about a great investigator in upstate New York I loved that setting and it just kind of broke me on my slump. And then I read Megan Collins's Behind the Red Door and I heard Megan on your podcast too. So that was an excellent way. And then that kind of just broke me out. So lately I've read Second Home, The Second Home by Christy Clancy about a family home in Cape Cod and who gets it when the parents die and a sibling rivalry and stuff like that. I read The Chicken Sisters by KJ DelAntonio which was a Reese Witherspoon pick in December about two sisters who battle each other on a reality TV show. And right now I'm reading a romance, which is a genre that I don't often read and very often find myself blushing. And (laughs) 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 I'm trying to get more into it because I've read, you know, so many good romances are out there and so many diverse voices are being published in romance right now. And so I'm reading How to Fail at Flirting by Denise Williams, which is very sexy. So that is fun, too.
0: And I interviewed her too, and I really liked her. She was a ton of fun, and I really enjoyed that book too.
1: Yeah, I'm loving it. And I'll have to go back and listen to her interview with you to hear more about her process. But I love following her on social media, and I'm very excited for her next book too.
0: And I love The Dead Season and the follow-up to it. Those are great mysteries.
1: Yes, I am a huge mystery fan. In fact, I'd love to write a mystery or a thriller soon. So we'll see what my editor has to say about that.
0: It seems like so many different authors who either have written historical fiction or contemporary fiction are now pivoting and writing mysteries.
1: I've seen a few of those too. One that comes to mind is Julie Clark. She had a women's fiction, and then she wrote The Last Flight, which is a thriller that I really loved that was out last year. And that was one
0: of my favorites. I
1: thought that was so well done. And I couldn't even imagine how those two stories were going to come together. And then they did in a really organic way. So I was so impressed by that novel. And then, you know, like there are a bunch of writers like Leon Moriarty, my favorite, who does kind of have dead bodies in her books that otherwise read like women's fiction or contemporary fiction. So it is it def- it's, a, it's a trend. And I do love it. I love reading that genre. So maybe that's why.
0: And Paula McLean has a mystery coming out in April. Yeah, you know, and she's done historical fiction for a while. So it's interesting. So I get, you know, it's just a fun genre to read, though I I am such a picky thriller reader, I really have to bob and weave kind of with what I read, because I'm just too literal, and I'm too take it at face value. And so then I sit there and just pick apart, well, nobody would really do that. Oh, nobody would say that, or that couldn't happen. So then it takes some of the fun out of it for me. So I have to really make sure it's a book that's gonna at least be somewhat realistic.
1: Yeah. And I think that's true in all genres. Sometimes it will pull me out. Like if I notice something that I don't think rings true to what would actually happen in real life, that can pull me out of any genre. But you're right, especially in mystery and
0: thriller. I agree completely. I just think it's the easiest there because you've got to make all these red herrings and you've got to have, you know, people can't be totally normal, regular people all the time, or you're not going to have a thriller. And it's just a matter of, you know, are they too crazy? Or is it something that somebody would actually do and that that ends up, like you said, pulling me out of the story. And then I just I'm like, I can't finish it.
1: Yeah, I understand. And I also think if you if you come up on a book that you can't finish, you should just stop. My husband is is struggling right now. He likes to read adventure kind of novels, a la Clive Cussler, And he tried a new author in that genre. And he's like, I just don't like this. This book is never going to end. I'm like, well, just stop reading it. (laughs) You don't have to finish, but he he's not on board. He's going to struggle all the way through to the end of that book. So
0: so, well, yeah. that used to be me. But then when I started doing, you know, book reviewing and the piles get higher and higher, and now with the podcast, you know, I feel like I'm just barely keeping up. So I usually just sort of leave it there and not, you know, try to taint other people's view of it. But I just think, you know, some books are right for some people and others are right for other people. Well, Kathleen, I'm so excited that you joined me today in the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I always enjoy speaking with you. And I know everybody's going to love Are We There Yet?
1: Oh, I've been so excited. I've listened to many episodes, usually when I'm on my treadmill. I love the podcast and I have such happy memories of being with you in Houston. And I hope we can do that again soon.
0: Me too, for sure. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at thoughts from a page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Kathleen's book can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront or at Murder by the Book, and both the links are in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. I'm Alison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.